Have you ever wondered about the difference between a point of view and a perspective? That difference can be demonstrated by a picture of two artists who happen to be in prison. Now, both of these men have the same point of view, but as they look out through their prison bars, they each have a different perspective. One sees only his immediate perspective, that's the prison bars, and that's what he draws. The other one looks beyond the prison and sees the beautiful view in the distance, the ultimate perspective, and that's what he draws. Now, the Apostle John, as he endured exile, which was a kind of imprisonment on the island of Patmos, was enabled to endure because he saw that everything in his life was under the sovereign control and will of Almighty God. He was able, with that knowledge, to fix his eyes on the ultimate perspective of heaven and to see things through God's eyes. Now, in our last study in Revelation 13, we were presented with a, a very depressing view, it has to be said, of what was going to happen in the church age after Jesus' death and resurrection and right up to his second coming. We saw the, the rising up of the beast, as it was called, of anti-God political power and the other beast of anti-God ideologies appearing in every century, which would do their utmost to persecute every true believer. And although in this country we, we do not presently see physical persecution for being a Christian, or very rarely, uh, we are seeing the advance of ungodly values in government and society. We're seeing perverted human relationships. We're seeing evil being called good and good being called evil. To paraphrase the prophet Isaiah, in society, ultimate truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever turns away from evil makes himself a target. This is the point of view we're presented with in our society. The devil would just love Christians to see themselves as his prisoners, his targets, bound by his rules, laws, and norms that he dictates through ungodly regimes and governments. We need just to read the news any day of the week to feel that we really are living in such a world, such a dark world, as represented by those prison bars. However, that does not need to be our perspective on our situation. We need to see beyond the outward marginalization, the oppression and brutality of this world to see another universe, a better universe, a new heavens and a new earth which are to come when Christ returns. That is what we have in Revelation chapter 14. John raises his eyes and sees a different reality. Not the oppressive times in which he's living under the heel of Rome, but the ultimate reality that is reserved for him and all true believers in the future under King Jesus. That could be represented by the ultimate perspective seen by our second prisoner, a perspective without bars. Uh, now, you may say, however, that it's unrealistic to ignore those bars. They are there. But at least we can try and focus on the view beyond them, to see that farther pers perspective, which will give us the patience and the endurance we need to last the distance for Christ. And patience and endurance are spoken of so often in this book of Revelation. And that's why we need chapter 14 after chapter 13, 
not just because it's, it's the next in the sequence. In this passage, we, we see two destinies. First of all, the destiny of those who love Christ. And secondly, the destiny of those who reject Christ. And after we look at these two destinies, we'll see thirdly how the separation will be made between the two. First of all, then, the destiny of those who love Christ. John says at the beginning of the chapter, he says, I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Here we see, first of all, a view of the saviour of the redeemed. Who is it? It's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus the Messiah, who above all things loves to glory in his redemptive identity as the Lamb of God, the Lamb who is at the centre of the throne, the Lamb who in God's plan and purpose was slain before the foundation of the world. Where is he standing? On Mount Zion. And this is the Bible's way of describing the heavenly Jerusalem itself, which at the end of time will come down out of heaven from God. Who is with him? Those described as 144,000. And we know from Revelation chapter 7 of this book uh, that this is a way of referring to the complete people of God, the whole church in its entirety as seen in God's eyes. And how do we know who they are? Because we're told they have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. What is this name? The name is the name of Yahweh, God's own name. The name above every name. This is the seal of the Lord. And it signifies that the whole church across all ages is in the ownership of Christ and his father, who as one are Yahweh. Every true believer is, is the possession of Christ and will stand with him in his heavenly kingdom when he returns. It's a crowd which no one can count, and yet each one is very precious to Christ. In John 10, he says, No one can snatch them out of my hand, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says, My Father who gave them to me is greater than all. I and my Father are one. Every true believer is secure in Christ. Verse 4 tells us that they were purchased from among mankind and the purchase price was the blood of the Son of God, the Lamb. We move on to consider the next thing, the song of the redeemed. Yes, there will be singing in heaven, extolling the praises of God and of the Lamb. And one wonders, what are they singing? Well, we, we, hear, we see, first of all, in verse 2, the, the musical introduction of the song of God's people. John tells us it was like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And the word translated roar is literally the word for sound or voice. In chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 15, we read that the voice of the risen Christ was like the sound of rushing waters. And so what we're reading here is that the Lamb himself gives the introduction to the song, and then his people sing to his accompaniment. It's a powerful song, like thunder, but also tender, melodious and beautiful, like the sound of many harps. We're not told exactly what the content of the song is, but we are told this is a new song. 
a song fitting to exalt the praises of the Lamb, the praises um, of what he has done for us. There's a clue about the content of the song in verse 3, in that no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So it's connected to their redemption. And they don't sing from a song sheet, but from the heart, because he has saved them. And that's why no one can sing a song like this except the redeemed. Not even the angels of God in heaven can sing this song because they have never experienced the joy of redemption. So David in the Old Testament testifies to this song in Psalm 40. He says, the Lord took me out of the mud and the mire. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. And a question that naturally arises is, can you, this, can you sing this song? Oh, I know we can all sing songs uh, like, for example, we get the score of the Messiah and sing beautiful words from Scripture. But to do that, so many people need to have the score. But to sing this song in Revelation 14 is from the heart. Only the person who has experienced their sins forgiven in Christ can sing this song. Have you? Having thought of the saviour of the redeemed and the song of the redeemed, we go on to consider the character of the redeemed. They're described in, in terms of four things, their purity, their loyalty, their dedication, and their guilelessness. Think of this first of all, their purity. We're told in verse four, these are those who did not defile themselves with women. Now, Obviously, this is symbolic language because Christ's church contains both men and women, whereas the redeemed are described here as though they're all men. And also, we're not to take from this that the sex act itself is in any way impure or defiling as given by God. It's we humans who have made it that. Rather, the opposite it is that God gave sex to the human race not just so that we could procreate, but also, among other things, to show us in carefully understood symbol the relationship between Christ and his church. The key is to view God's people, men and women, as the bride of Christ, as scripture tells us, the bride whom he has redeemed and purified with the dowry of his own blood. And so in heaven, all those who are saved by God's grace will possess the purity of Christ himself. Secondly, we hear of loyalty here. We're told they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And there are echoes here of the loyalty which Jesus said his sheep have for him in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And we're told in Revelation 7 that, that the lamb is at the center of the throne and he will be their shepherd and will lead them. We're told also here of dedication. We're told they are offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Now, at first, this seems an obscure reference until we understand that in the harvest festivals of Israel, the first fruits of the harvest were holy and dedicated in a special sense. These first fruits could not be put to an ordinary use because they belonged to God. And that's the idea here. These people belong to God and to the Lamb as their special possession. 
And lastly, but with regard to the character of the regime, we read of a guilelessness here. We're told, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. The idea conveyed here by the Greek word is that Christ's people are, are transparent, are without guile, without craftiness, without that guile that was passed on to the human race through the serpent when we fell in our, in our father Adam and our mother Eve. So in all these ways, purity, loyalty, dedication, and guilelessness, God's people in heaven will reflect the character of Christ himself, and they will be with him. And this is a perspective that gives great hope and joy to God's people, especially in suffering, especially as we experience the, the prison bars that the world so often throws at us or confines us behind, metaphorically speaking. But from verse 6 here, we also see the destiny of those who reject Christ. Here we, we see three angels or messengers of God spelling out to the world that their time of opportunity to repent and turn to him for salvation is almost gone. The first angel, let's consider the first angel, who makes a final appeal to the earth's inhabitants. Now we read of this first angel flying in midair, which is the Bible's way of saying that heaven is conspicuously communicating to the earth a warning. The message is directed to those who live on the earth. And as we've noticed before, this means those who have invested all of their security and all the things that are valuable to them in this world alone. They have accumulated their treasures here upon the earth and they have dismissed any thought of life beyond the grave. Any relationships they hope to have will be here. Any possessions will be here. Anything that's important to them is here. What is this angel's message to them? We read that he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. Now, this doesn't mean that the gospel is going to be proclaimed eternally. There will be a deadline. Only that it is a gospel that has eternal benefits to its beneficiaries. And this angel is not an evangelist or a gospel preacher himself. And that's the job of the Christian, yours and mine. This angel is more like the news seller on the street corner I used to see when I was a boy, who used to be selling during the afternoon the early editions, but towards the evening the final edition came out. That, that edition contained all the up-to-date news, but it was only available for a certain time. And like the news seller, this angel speaks in a loud voice, which shows that it's intended that all should hear. The angel's message is, Fear God and give him glory. That's the Bible's way of saying, give God the respect that he is due. Worship only him. And the only way fallen humans can glorify God is, of course, by putting their trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who do not do this are rejecting God and the only one who can save them. And time is running out. We read of a second angel this second angel pronounces the final downfall of the ungodly world system. This is the first time we read in the revelation of the great Babylon. Many commentators have speculated about the identity of this Babylon. But if we use scripture to interpret scripture, it becomes very clear. We just need to go back to Genesis chapter 11, where we read of the city and tower of Babel, which is the same name as Babylon. 
Way back then, the human, human race built a city and a tower with the collective intention of showing contempt for God and developing the world in the way they wanted to, a world without God. Although at that time the, the Lord caused the division of languages and cultures to prevent their united outright rebellion against him, the seeds of rebellion have always been there and still are. Babylon is not a state. It's a state of mind. It's an attitude and worldview which seeks to promote man over God, to exalt man to the highest. It's the humanist agenda. If you want to unmask Babylon in our world today, just ask this question regarding any matter. Does this project, achievement or initiative give glory to God or to man? We see it everywhere in the world of industry, the world of entertainment, the world of education, the world of careers, of politics, of economics and commerce. Uh, globalization may have had some positive benefits, but very few. It has also promoted the anti-God cause of the great Babylon in bringing the human race together, united, uniting them once again in the rebellion. Even in the, the world of science, we've been treated lately to the boasts of those who acclaim medical science as our saviour in the matter of a vaccine against the coronavirus. You read all kinds, all kinds of, um, of recommendations given, uh, such as um, this is the great solution. In the future, we have hope because of this vaccine, instead of which they should have been giving glory to God for the discoveries which made it possible. This second angel tells us that anything that selfishly ascribes glory to man and rebels against God, God considers as adultery. And that's why Babylon is presented as the great prostitute. And we'll hear about her more fully in chapters 17 and 18. But in the meantime, the second angel foretells her final downfall. The third angel uh, declares the final doom of those who side with evil. The third angel declares that if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury. Now, if you haven't been following this series, you may be a bit mystified as to what scripture means by the beast and his image or what it means to receive the mark of the beast. If that's the case, I'd urge you to listen to the sermon by Liam Garvey a few weeks ago on, Re on Revelation chapter 13, which will clarify that issue. But to recap briefly, the beast represents all political world systems which demand that the Christian should obey laws which run contrary to God's laws. To give you an example, from the year 286 during the Roman Empire, on 22nd September that year, an entire Roman legion of 6,600 men, the Theban Legion from Egypt, was put to death by order of the Emperor Maximian. Why? because they would not renounce Christ as their saviour and declare him as their God. These men were all Coptic Christians from Egypt who had been conscripted into the service of Rome. And this is what they said after they had been decimated after that. They, they were decimated by having 660 killed, and that didn't work. The emperor had another 660 killed. And at that point, the, the legion's commanders 
uh, made a petition to the emperor who was, who was uh, stationed close by. This was in Gaul. And he said to them, they said to him, Emperor, we are your soldiers, but also the soldiers of the true God. We owe you military service and obedience, but we cannot renounce him who is our creator and master and also yours, even though you reject him. In all things which are not against his law, we must willingly obey you, as we have done hitherto. We have taken an oath to God before we took one to you. You cannot place any confidence in our second oath if we violate our first. You commanded us to execute Christians, though that is what we are. We confess God the Father, the creator of all things, and his Son, Jesus Christ, as also God. And interestingly, it's now in the years, in 2021, it's only six years since 21 Coptic Christians were martyred on the coast of Libya by ISIS. Again, their only crime was believing in Jesus. Now, we may not be killed yet in, our, in this country for our Christian faith, but the time's already here when God's people are being marginalised for their loyalty to Christ, resulting in the loss of jobs, reputation, and privileges which are given to those who give obedience to ungodly values and, and systems. And it may also soon happen that Christians will be prosecuted for their refusal to comply with laws which disregard God's truth. Jesus was very clear about this. He says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. He said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The soldiers of the Theban legion to a man were very clear about their loyalty to Christ who had given his life for them. They were not ashamed of him when it came to the ultimate sacrifice. Like those John describes in verses 12 and 13, they had that patient endurance and were willing to obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Consequently, for all those who die in the Lord, that is united with Christ, there is blessing and rest, and we're told that their deeds follow them, or as has been said elsewhere, what we do in life echoes in eternity. But for all those who are unwilling to be associated with Christ, all of those who otherwise therefore side with the devil, we read that some of the most awful words in all of Scripture in verse 10, and although it's symbolic language, that makes it no less horrific, and it does not give me the least comfort to recite these, this verse to you. It makes me very uncomfortable, it, but it's very true. We are told they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and forever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or anyone for anyone who receives the mark of his name. There are only two possibilities here. Either we have symbolically in our foreheads seen by God the seal of the name of Christ and his Father evidenced by our obedience or we have the mark of the beast whereby our destiny will be in the lake of fire with the evil one and his fallen angels. 
Lastly, how will the separation be made between these two destinies? In the Gospels, Jesus gives us several parables to describe the separation that will be made between the wicked and those who have been made righteous in Christ. For example, we can think of the, the parable of the good fish and the bad fish in the dragnet, or the parable of the wheat and the tares, the weeds. Or we can think of the parable of the sheep and the goats. But here in Revelation 14, we're presented with two harvests. First of all, the harvest of the righteous, portrayed as a grain harvest. And the harvest of the wicked, portrayed as a harvest of grapes. First of all, in the grain harvest, we see that this, this is harvested by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is identified as the one like a son of man, just as he was in Daniel chapter 7. This one who has a golden crown on his head. During his ministry, Jesus identified himself as the Lord of the harvest, who sends gospel workers out into his harvest field. Now, in his day, the fields of Samaria were ripe for harvest. And now we're told that the whole earth is to be harvested. Of course, he's assisted in the matter by the angels. Mark tells us that at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. But in terms of the harvest, he himself is the great harvester who will have the honour of swinging his sickle over the earth. The other harvest, the harvest that, that of the grapes, is an entirely different matter. The imagery used here has been immortalised in the Battle Hymn of the Republic and also borrowed by John Steinbeck for one of his novels. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Once again, the angels are involved in the re as the reapers of this harvest also. Uh, they cut the grapes, which, are, which symbolize the world's rebellious inhabitants, all those who are not united to Christ, and cast them into the winepress. But with that, their harvest job is done, because they are not the tramplers of the grapes. That job is done by none other than Christ himself. In chapter 19 of Revelation, uh, the divine warrior who is identified as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is also described as he who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. This was made clear in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, 700 years before Jesus was even born. When Isaiah wrote of the day of the Lord's vengeance, the day when all wrongs will be righted and God's people will be avenged. Now, when Jesus went to Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry, he quoted from Isaiah about preaching the good news to the poor, about proclaiming freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and relief for the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favour, which refers to the gospel age where sins can be forgiven. And that time is now the time in which you and I live. But the part of that part of scripture which Jesus did not read in Nazareth, was the part referring to the day and the day of vengeance of our God, the day of which we're reading. On that day, the kind, compassionate, loving shepherd of his people will be revealed as the just, unremitting judge and executioner of his enemies. It's a truly shocking account as we read not of grape juice, but of blood flowing out of the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. 
So having said all these things, as we conclude, we need to ask ourselves, how do we know which destiny is ours? Because it's really important. Will we be gathered by Christ the Lamb to be with him and all of his people forever in his heavenly realm? Or will we be crushed by Christ the divine warrior in the winepress of God's wrath and cast into the lake of fire with the devil and all who follow him? Only one of these destinies is possible for each human being. So how do we know which one it will be for us? Relevant questions you might ask yourself at this point are, do you love Christ? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Do you worship him as your Lord? Are you looking forward to his coming again? Or are you dreading it? If you have answered uh, yes uh, to all of these questions, then it is an indication that you are one of his people. But if today you are not not a Christian, you need to know this. And by the way, it's not surprising if you are dreading his coming again, if you're not a Christian. Because as long as you are not reconciled to God, then you're in a very dangerous position. Your nature as a sinner alienates you from God and puts you in the devil's camp. And if your situation does not change through trusting Christ, then when he returns as judge, you too will be destroyed with eternal punishment. There's no middle ground here. Christ says to us, if you're not with me, you're against me. If today we are Christians, we need also to ask ourselves this. Are we allowing ourselves in this present time to be limited by thoughts and feelings which are triggered by the sufferings and difficulties we're experiencing? Or are we able, by God's grace, to fix our eyes not on what is seen from an earthly perspective, but on on what is unseen from a heavenly perspective? To see Christ who has gone ahead of us as the pioneer of our faith and so to gain the strength to finish the, the race he has given us to run and thereafter to live eternally with him in his heavenly kingdom. Now if you've got any questions arising from this passage or from this message, please get in touch with us through info at charlottechapel.org and we'll be more than happy to discuss them with you. In a moment, you're going to see a prayer which we can pray together. And if you pray this prayer sincerely from the heart, truly believing what it says, then you can know that you have eternal life. Let us pray. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead so that I may have new life. Please forgive me and help me to change from my rebellious ways that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.